For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a teacher. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Welcome to What Do You Teach with Brian Elbert. Hello and welcome to What Do You Teach with me, Brian Elberg. The show where I, Brian Elberg, a New York City public high school math teacher, sit down with some of the brightest minds in education and talk to them about what happens when the greatest ideals for what education can be come face-to-face with actual students. On today's episode, I was honored to be joined by Professor J. Max Sood, a former professor of mine, in fact, from the Relay Graduate School of Education. Jay and I sat down to talk about the IEP process. I've written and read many IEPs over the years, and I've often said that no IEP is more useful than a 10-minute conversation. So on this episode, I present that idea to Professor Maxud, and we discuss whether that is true, and if IEPs actually do have some meaning, what can we do to really bring that meaning out of them instead of just making them meaningless, boring, compliance-driven documents that don't tell us anything about the actual student in front of us. If you enjoy this episode and you've enjoyed the past episodes with guests such as John Hattie, Joe Dombrowski, Ryan McCabe, please go ahead and review this wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or what have you. Also, if you're into such things, throw me a follow on social media at Brian Elberg so you can stay up to date with future guests of the podcast. All right. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Jay Maxud. So I'm very lucky today to be joined by a former professor of mine from the Relay Graduate School of Education. And he's back in the classroom. He's been a special educator for about 10 years. Jay Maxud. Jay, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk to you today about special education and the IEP process. I've been a special educator myself for about five years. um, And I really during that time have wrestled with a lot of the different elements of the IEP process. So I'm gonna start out with sort of a a little bit of background and then sort of a rather contentious point that I'm gonna throw out there. And I just was hoping that we could um, talk about that and sort of sink our teeth in there. How does that sound? Yeah, let's do it. Sure, so I just wanna say before we start that I couldn't believe any stronger that like all special education students can succeed on the highest of levels. And in my experience, it's often because they learn differently, not despite the fact that they learn differently, that does end up helping students in my classroom succeed. So this isn't some like bizarre (laughs) point about that. But I would also say that through all of my experience writing IEPs and reading IEPs and working in compliance, that I have never written or read an IEP that was more useful than a 10 minute get to know you conversation and maybe a diagnostic exam. And I feel like when I say that to some people in our field, they like really pull back. So I'm just sort of curious, what is your immediate reaction when I present that point? I think it's a good point. And I think (laughs) I don't think it's uh, absolutely a false statement. Um, I think uh, I agree with the idea that conversations are sometimes more often more uh, uh, enlightening than something that's written on a piece of paper by somebody that you don't even know. Right. Um, or you don't know what their experience was. You don't know how good writers they, they were because I think a part of writing a good IP is also uh, your writing skills. Um, you know, we've all read things that 
we find interesting and informational and we've all read things that we find useless and not informational right and iep is no different than any other piece of literature written about a thing that is meant to give you information about things so if you you know you can look at a, a, a manual that is designed to help you build a piece of furniture you can look at it and it's you know not in you know at all useful mm-hmm. you'll throw it away and you'll try to figure it out how to build it on your own so I see your point in the quality of IPs and what we see. Um, and at the same time, um, there is a reason why IEPs exist. So, right. I, so that was, I was going to jump in there. So like in, in a perfect, the best IEP you've ever read, right? What is the best case scenario for what you are getting from that as a teacher? A lot of background information that I'm not going to get from that 10 minute conversation that you uh, mentioned earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because my first couple of 10 minute conversations with the students are probably going to be of the introductory type, you know, how are you, who you are, what do you like, what do you, what do I like? And so those first initial conversations tend to be um, not very in-depth conversations. Later conversations are in-depth conversations right. usually. So I don't think that's one of the reasons why I don't think an, a, a conversation can replace an IEP, a well-written IEP, that is. Mm-hmm. But um, in a well-written IEP, I get a lot of background information about the story of the child. How has school been for them? Mm-hmm. Um, what were they like last year? What was the previous couple of years were like for them in all of their different classes? Um, I would want to know, for example, there's a lot of things often that I see in IEP that I am kind of surprised by. Um, uh, like I, there's so many examples, but one recent one was I, I didn't know one of my students kept a journal. Um, she, I, she was a good writer comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my other students, um, but not her most recent IEP, but the IEP before that one mentioned that she used to keep um, a writer's notebook and she used to love writing in it both in class and out of class. That's something that's important. Um, If she's keeping a writer's journal and I'm the writing teacher, if that's something she's into, she wants to work on her writing a little bit more, maybe I should encourage her to do that again. You know, (laughs) so I would not necessarily have gone there because that's not typically the structure of my humanities class. I don't we don't do like a, we do a, a writer's notebook, but we don't do a journal on the side. So oftentimes there's personal things that are in the IP that uh, 10 minute conversations don't usually get at. Like um, there's sometimes information about a specific disability uh, like ADHD mm-hmm. um, and its history and its evolution in the child's life. And the child is not necessarily going to talk about that in the middle school anyway, uh, or tell me a whole lot of like this, oh, I was on medication and this happened and then I got off medication and the doctor, like all of that is sometimes in the IEP and I think it should be. Um, and that's really helpful information to see right. how the student has evolved. And oftentimes I have also found information about children's like um, children who are in the foster uh, care programs around the city and you learn about their life outside of school and it helps you get insight onto 
uh, the various situations that the students have to deal with outside. And that's also very helpful information. So a lot of that is not going to come out in just one or some conversations. You Over time, you learn about those things. But if those things are already included in an IEP, absolutely doesn't hurt. I will want to read it. I would want to consume that information. So I have two sort of places I want to go with what you just said. The first is other than something like learning about the student had his ADHD or learning that a student is in a foster home or, or was, how does that change the, the day-to-day interaction that you might have um, with that student? Because this sort of would go back to something I wanted to talk about in a bit with like accommodations for students. I feel like if we can get to a place and maybe this is a little too utopian, but where all teachers are just coming at students with lots of empathy, that I'm, if you're already coming into a place where you're having empathy for whatever a student's situation is, how does that change it to know what their specific situation is? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I think it's a, I think I operate on the, on the premise that the more you know about a student, the better. Right. Regardless of what attitudes you're bringing, it's just like um, planning a lesson or a unit. The more you prepare, the more likely it'll be better. Yes, sometimes you'll get those one-hit wonders. Maybe you wrote a lesson on a napkin and it went really well. I don't know. But for the most part, for most of us professionals, the more thinking we can do behind a a project, an initiative, the better it goes. Uh, There's just no arguing that. Right. And every student works the same way. If uh, the more I know about a student, the, the better teacher I will be, generally speaking. Now, specifically, if you're thinking about, oh, how do I, uh, now that you know the history of, uh, let's say, this foster care situation of a child, like now that you have that, and I only gave you two examples, there's probably a hundred. Oh, of course. Uh, but but it, it, even in that situation, like even to begin to think about what parent contact looks like for this student. Yep. Right away, if you are a responsible professional, you would use that information to figure out, okay, I might have to spend extra time figuring out how contact works. Where's the student living right now? Where's they, where are they traveling from? Who do I need to contact to talk to them about their progress? Who are the people in the school and outside of the school community that are there supporting them in various different ways, because oftentimes there are service providers for foster children in school and out of school, oftentimes. So you you wouldn't have thought of any of that. <laughs> That's that is a good point in in, in any 10 minute conversation. So my, my point is that I think in in any of these situations, the more we know at, at the get go, the more prepared we can be. Um, and you know, similarly with any kind of a disability, knowing about our disability is, is, is to me more than about just being empathetic. I think knowing about it can also help you reflect and figure out like what you need to learn. So um, especially for newer teachers, you see ADHD and you might assume, oh, a, a person might be very physically active and, 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 and hard for them and very impulsive. You might know those two things, impulsivity 
and hyperactivity. Right. And you might put that student in that little, you know, uh, sort of a mold in your mind, which is kind of limiting. Mm -hmm. So um, knowing that or knowing how ADHD has affected the child over the past couple of years or what the evaluations have revealed and how things have changed, both maybe in a medication or not, knowing that history should help you hopefully yeah, again if you're it's it's also what you want to do with this information right like if right. you want to be the type of teacher who doesn't want to learn from the IEP you can be that sure but if you are somebody who really wants to know have as much information as possible to do the best they can for the child in and outside of the classroom then can't say really no to any extra information so if you know about this and you can be reflective about this you can figure out like what is it about adhd that i need to learn a little bit more now that i know that adhd is in the picture what should i pay attention to during my first week to see how the student like what am i what which, what am i going to do with prompting should i do more prompting with this particular student should i start calling on them to build a relationship early on with this particular student of course you're going to do that with everybody but you can't deny that certain things like adhd require slightly different approaches so you might start thinking about that different approach in the beginning of the school year versus later on in the school year like you know adhd type of behaviors that we typically associate with it they start to manifest second month of school. First month usually goes pretty, pretty good. Yep. And then teachers are like, oh my God, uh, how would this kid just flipped and turned around? And we, I had no idea of my 10 minute conversation with them went really well. And we, we are really, you know, cool. And we play video games and everything. Uh, he comes to me for lunch, but now he's not sitting at all. He was walking out. So that's because maybe you didn't think about this thing potentially happening maybe early on if you had read the IP and paid attention to all the things you need to be planning for. So, you know, there's a lot one can do, but I think it's what you bring to it as well. So I have two jumping off points I want to go from there. So you've given two very clear examples, right, about foster care and ADHD. And I know that there are hundreds more of like specific examples we could um, we could go down. Where I sometimes, and I feel like the, all of the information you just described, super important, and I would want any teacher teaching their students to have access to that information on day zero, you know, before they even um, see the student for the first time. I sometimes worry that I get that these IEPs are sometimes bogged down with so much language based in compliance that those super important pieces of information can often sort of get lost in, in that sea, right? So is there any way that people writing IEPs, reading IEPs, or um, even just entering this field can know how to access those diamonds from this sea of language that is in an IEP and can feel overwhelmed? I think that's a bigger problem and a better problem to put our attention toward because okay. that to me is a legitimate problem. The, the district representatives often are worried about semantics. Um, uh, last year, for example, in my district, in my school, they were, I don't know, they were talking about some nonsense about should the goals be grade wide, grade level, or should they be this level or that level? And, and they're telling us to make grades, you know, make right goals that are based on grade level. That's their opinion. Right. They have no uh, research evidence that that works, but yet <laughs> they, they force us to try to write that way. They, 
you know, I, I know my, like you're saying, I know my student, I read their previous IPs, looked right. at their data, I work with them. And I know the student is still reading uh, books that are picture books at the first grade level. They're reading rhyming books, etc. Right. You want me to write a seventh grade level goal for them is completely ridiculous. Uh, so those types of things are what make this so difficult and sloppy at the same time. Because right, if I, you're going to tell everybody, go make, make sure everybody's goal is at seventh grade level because they're in seventh grade. Without that clearly shows you don't care about the child's history. It clearly shows you don't care what we know about the kid. You just care about what it says on that paper so that you can tell your boss above that, oh, all our goals are grade level. Yeah, because and we're holding students to high expectations, but it's really about meeting students where they are. Yeah, and, right? and high expectations doesn't mean that tomorrow I should be piloting a plane. Exactly. Right, like I, I have, I've never driven a plane. I've only been a passenger. So I could have a high expectation for myself that by the end of this week, I'm going to be a proper pilot. Yeah, that's a great expectation. Ideally, it's, it's fine, but expect high expectations have to also be appropriate. And that's where a professional comes in. So if we have professionals who believe in high expectations um, and you, you train them to think in that way, then we also have to then trust them to set the proper goals for particular students. And sometimes the other problem with the compliance is they think that that's the, or at least they present this as the end-all be-all. So for example, so what if I wrote a goal that is at the second grade level? What's going to happen? Right. Do you think the child's life is now ruined? Do you think they will never go to college or something? It, because I put that goal there because I saw that need. Right. Like, does, does it really matter? It doesn't. But it, in the compliance sense, because people want to come in, look at your IP, and they want to, you know, check off their checklist. Yep. To them, that's why that matters. They, because, you know, there's too many people's salaries attached to this kind of work checking up on other people, unfortunately. And um, that I think minimizes both the value of the IP as well as the quality of it when we're not giving teachers enough time or trust to really write what they should write about and to really write in the language that makes sense to everybody. Yes, I've been in so many, I, I was in a couple IP meetings this year where to bring up your point about how many people's salaries are tied to this. I'm sitting around in a Zoom, I guess, with like eight people. The student has not showed up for school once. And we're going through the compliance aspect of what does their English teacher say? And it's like, no one's met the kid. Can we get, can we get on the phone with them? Can we get a parent here? Can we figure, can someone please do something that would actually be helpful? And so that's why it's meetings like that, that I honestly, you're, you're already changing my mind in this conversation. Um, but it's, it is meetings like that that have made me that, that have made me a, a bit cynical about it, where it's like we're not actually helping in this meeting, but we're all there's a lot of taxpayer money going to us sitting exactly. around pretending we've met a student we've never met, essentially. Um, so and then I also feel like I've been in meetings as well where I've gotten all the teacher reports. I've tried to sort of pick out the pertinent information and present that clearly and succinctly. And then I'm being told by a higher up, a district rep, something like, oh, well, put in more about what their, you know, their English teacher said. And it's like, 
I, my job, I feel like I'm being turned into like a copy and paster. Exactly. Like, I can just take things from this document and paste them over here, but no one really needs to know about, you know, this particular essay that a student did okay on and didn't particularly love or didn't particularly <laughs> hate. And it's, but it, all of that is blocking people from getting to the key information that really might be useful. Um, and you did bring up goal setting. And I think the goal setting is a particularly frustrating place when it comes to compliance, <laughs> both because of what you brought up about this tension of, do we need to have everything on grade level or do we actually need to think rationally about what makes sense for a student in front of us? And I think like, shouldn't the goal always be to push the student as much as possible? Whereas if we set this goal of they should be able to do it 80% of the time on Tuesdays and Fridays, but on Thursdays, it feels like it's again, so compliance driven that it blocks out all the really valuable information we could be getting from IEPs. So I know I just gave you a lot, but how can we improve the goal setting process is essentially my question. Yeah, I think teachers really have to take into their own hands what they believe, because at the end of the day, no matter what someone tells you, um, you are the one writing the IEP and you can write whatever it is that you want to be honest as a professional because right. you know the student the most so i don't necessarily respond well to write the goal this way type of talk um i do what i want to do um, what i know is right and if you have a problem with that i'm still going to write the iep the way i want to with the parent there if they have questions they can bring it up but you could have a problem with the language that's fine um, talk to me later about it, but I'm not changing it just because you are set in one way of doing things. Right. Because that's counter to what the IP process is supposed to be. It's supposed to be dynamic, changing in the moment as you learn and gather more information about a student. So to go back to the, uh, to the goals, um, I'm not anti-grade level goals, by the way, just to be clear, but I, I don't think it's the only kind of goal you need. Right. Um, a child needs, not you need, a child needs. It's not the only kind of goal a child might need. I gave the example of a child before who might be dyslexic. They aren't, you know, they're in the seventh grade already and they don't know how to read. Now, uh, you know, people would tell you to get crafty about the seventh grade goals so that it's still accessible to this particular child. Oh, you could write it like this and then it's still seventh grade. But who, who cares about the seventh grade in that? <laughs> sense when totally. what you and I both care about is setting a, a goal for a student that they can achieve and start to become better readers. Like hopefully that's our goal. Grade doesn't matter in that case. Um, and, and the other assumption here seems to be, and again, this is where those supervisors come in who are a bit out of touch with the realities on the ground. This message about making goals grade level comes from people who might be assuming that just because they're making you put that goal there or write it the way they want it to, mm -hmm. that the child now all of a sudden is going to meet the high expectation. Right. They, they really, it, it, it just defeats common sense. I don't, I don't understand this, that they think that if you wrote a goal at the seventh grade level, that the teachers will work harder all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, and the child will also work harder all of a sudden and the disability doesn't matter. And eventually they'll within one year, get to the seventh grade rendition of this particular skill. 
Right. And it's so many goals like that that sort of led me to the, my point about a 10 minute conversation, because I feel like I'll read an IEP and I'll see a ninth grade math goal or ninth grade reading goal or something. I give the first assignment of the year and the student can't read. And I go, well, what did I spend all my time reading this document for if it's going <laughs> to pretend that the student is on a ninth grade level? And I've in two minutes, I was able to tell that this is not the exactly. Case. And so that's what's led me to sort of be more cynical about it, which is like, then what are we even what are we doing here, man? I my guidance to my team of teachers where I work is always that set a goal about a thing that the child needs to really work on. Mm -hmm. That's it. Now, put it into words. And if we want to make it wordsmith it a little bit to make it measurable and objective sounding, that's the yeah. thing we could do. Right. Uh, right. Uh, we, we can say, OK, you know what? Let's make sure that by the end of the year, you know, every four months, like four times a year, we check the student if they can do this thing. Um, we can we can add that kind of language. Sure. I'm not against that, but it should be a goal that the child actually needs. It shouldn't be. And this is what a lot of the higher ups would, would tell you where I disagree with them. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they're like, you know. Oftentimes, I don't know what your experience is, but like when I look at a goal, oftentimes it's the same thing as the standard. And I'm like, did I just read the standard? Right. And, 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 and the goal would say something like Charlie will uh, be able to use evidence in the text to support his answer. Well, that's like the first reading goal, pretty much. R1, if you look at the NGLA standard, is something right. about claim and evidence and whatnot. So like, People are literally taking that language and, and putting that in, in a goal, which might be okay for some kids, but it's really like not a thing that, you know, you're going to actually be testing every so often and explicitly teaching on every so often. That's just a general curriculum. Right. <laughs> so you're, you're supposed to be doing that for everybody. Exactly. You're, you're teaching everybody how to find evidence and the claim. Right. So why so then, are you making a goal for this particular student any and make it make it look like it's different or individualized? It's not. It's right. the whole class's goal. So this is that this sort of does lead me into the, the next place I wanted to go, which is maybe my position would be better flipped to say that every student should, in fact, have an IEP because every student does actually learn in their own individual way. And. I worry sometimes that with the IEP process, we create such a subjective division of students. And then it, it sort of, it creates a stigma. It creates a weird situation in a co-taught classroom because I know that I've been in this situation where I, you know, I read all the students' IEPs and I say, oh, you know what? This student last year really benefited from guided notes or something like that. So I print, I make a guided note sheet. I show up to class. What does every student in the class want now? General ed special. Well, they all say, I want guided notes too. Yep. And they're they're advocating very strongly that they want those. So why not give them to everybody? I'll give them to everybody. They want them. And sure. a similar example is extra time, right? We go through these whole this whole process of who gets extra time, who gets these particular accommodations. Then you have a student with no IEP, works hard the whole class period. He says, hey, Mr. Elberg, I need 10 more minutes. I'll give them 10 more minutes. So I feel like I basically just cut through a lot of the compliance language of an IEP because I looked at a kid and said, no, you need 10 extra minutes on this exactly. test. So 
how do we address that need for accommodations without just saying, hey, every kid basically needs an IEP? I think it's a compelling argument that every kid should have uh, an IEP. And I, there, I think there actually are some schools that that do that, that give or create a plan for all children during the first month of school. And then students have an individualized plan that they follow. Uh, and my understanding is that that has been successful. Um whatever your definition of success is, the kids are happy, they're achieving, et cetera, they're engaged, mm. motivated, all that, all those factors making it successful. So that's my feeling. I haven't uh, been in an environment like that. Uh, the only challenge I, I imagine in that type of a scenario, actually there's two that come to mind. One is all of the issues that we are just describing with IEPs. If we're going to multiply that by four or five or whatever, yeah. you know, that's it. it's going to be compounded. Like our yes. teachers going to be able to do that. Um, the schools that are doing, like I gave an example, I don't know the exact name of the school, but there's a couple of private schools that do it. Okay. And um, when I heard about them, my understanding was that they actually spend a significant amount of time in September and October to develop these. That's like the primary thing that teachers do in these settings okay. to learn and, and draft these plans with the student and have the student voice involved and whatnot. So all that sounds really good to me, as long as enough time and preparation is, is, is provided, you know. Um, but in a urban sort of school where a lot of times um, student population is the numbers higher. I don't know if in larger settings that's feasible. Okay. So that's one challenge. The feasibility of that kind of thing is challenging in my mind. Um, and then uh, the second, I wonder if that diminishes the um, significance of the an actual disability. Uh, it's, it's almost like saying all lives matter. I, I don't want to make it political, but like, Okay, right. sure. I That's true that. also. Everybody should you know, be celebrated and everybody should get all of the accommodations and everything. But in doing so, we are then once again kind of neglecting the group that was marginalized to begin with. Right. Okay. They had the IEP because their needs were by not on purpose, maybe, but were neglected or not met. Right. Mm -hmm. So people decided that something extra has to be done. So we recognize these students early, sooner, quicker, and we do something from the get-go about for them. They need a little bit of extra love, work, whatever, right? If you say everybody's doing that, then that the extra doesn't get delivered to the kids who need the extra. So right. okay, we still have to figure out what that extra might be for the students so that they still keep getting that. I almost wish there was a way to make sure all the students who need to get the extra, including some of the students who have never been formally evaluated. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know if uh, how diverse your experience is in, in schools, in different types of schools. Mm -hmm. Mine isn't very diverse. I've only mostly taught in New York city, urban schools. Yep, that's the same. For right. Me. I haven't taught anywhere else, but my kids go to, a suburban school okay and things are different there now we could get into obviously the discussion of why that is the right. haves and the haves nots the wealthy and the you yeah. know there's obviously the schools where we have worked this process is actually quite different than 
in affluent neighborhoods where maybe there are more resources and personnel. I I, I am still amazed. Um, and I think I don't know what year it was, but my daughter, uh, apparently was not reading at the same level as her peers. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we got a letter home saying, "Oh, we're putting her in an intervention program this many days a week." I didn't do anything. I didn't right. even know. So, right. like the school told me that, "Hey." We noticed this about your child. We just noticed it. And right away, we're putting her in a rotation with kids who need who are getting extra reading right now. Perfect. perfect. And that's and, and every student should have. And there's no IEP. It's amazing. There was no IEP process. You know what I mean? That usually slows that kind of thing down. Right. Like if there was an IEP process they initiated, then there would be an evaluation. Meanwhile, my daughter would still be in the class struggling. <laughs> you know, yep. there's no extra help. But that's not how it happens in more affluent neighborhoods. It is my feeling now that I have been, I live in in such neighborhood. Right. So it's different in the city. Yeah, there should be no reason, for example, like if, if you even put numbers to minutes and to people, like each person should not, each special education teacher should not have to write maybe more than eight IEPs a year. Right. Um, if that, I mean, if that might even be a high number, but I wrote 16 uh, the year before last. And this last year uh, I, that we just finished, I wrote, I think, 12. So this is the kind of thing that then leads to, um, you know, less quality. And- right. And, and also not necessarily spaced out in any intentional way. I think I had 10 this year, all, all in December. <laughs> it was just like, what is going on here? I like, I can't pause. And it's in the same day I'm writing an IEP for a straight A student and a student who's never been to school. And it's like, this feels like there, there has to be a better use of everyone's time than me copying and pasting all these documents. Oh my God. It's the day. worst. Yeah. Yeah. When it's like that, of course, I mean, there's no denying that there are problems with this process, but I, like to think that the problems with the process are due to the management of the of the process like mm-hmm. the schools where they're able to manage this well goes it, it goes well uh in schools where not enough resources are allocated toward this process the special education department the process obviously are going to struggle because more people are doing more um, than they really really can so right. I don't know if that answers your earlier question about like what what should we do about the accommodations, but it did make me think that I think, you know, in other schools, in other spaces, they're not waiting for the IEP. Right. They, and they that, are taking action immediately. And that's how you end up with some of the IEPs that I've read and written, quite frankly, where like I, I write things like, you know, uh, Shamel at times may work better from preferential seating. <laughs> well, what student doesn't at times maybe work better from preferential seating? And, and, and like, what if, and so see, the, your, your second part of the question was something about accommodations too, so yes. maybe we can go there, but yeah, let's do it. what is preferential seating? So what <laughs> exactly? who came up with that phrase, first of all, and when they did, did they mean it to mean what we now assume it to mean? Because right now, preferential seating, the way we put it on IEPs, means that student can choose their seat, I think. Is that what you think it means? I've heard it means that, or they can sit, <laughs> they need to sit in the front. So, <laughs> so how is that preferential? Like, whose preference? 
<laughs> whose preference are we honoring in preferential seating? Is it yes. my preference, the student's preference, the family's preference? <laughs> right. So, yeah. but we call it preferential seating. And then you look at the IEP and it says preferential seating in all classes. Right. All right. And it means nothing. So yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. And then, so uh, take a person like me, for example, I teach uh, self-contained. I have sometimes 12, sometimes 13 students in my class and all of them have preferential seating. So what, right. should, how should I set up my class? There's a giant long row of like everybody in the front seat. <laughs> and right. I'm standing in front of them <laughs> like a, like a semicircle. It's yes. so ridiculous. And, and, and that, that again, this comes down to how people have been trained to write IEPs, right? So right. if you go to the accommodation section, you're expected now to talk about what are the different extra things, supports that we should give each student and what should they look like? They, I think there's a column about how should it be impl implemented, mm -hmm. right? And preferential seating is one of the, the dumber ones that obviously have no, has no meaning, but everybody uses anyway because right. it what's was the, there in the last IP. What's the dumbest one you think? What's the dumbest one? Uh, there's more than one so that prevention is one and then okay the the other one is um uh test directions read aloud so i don't know if the listeners know about this but you know every test usually has like a one sentence at the top that gives directions hey right. read the passage below and answer the multiple choice questions right pick the best answer right so this sentence we have to read aloud to students <laughs> as if they don't know what that sentence means. And that's, some people actually think that that's gonna help students perform well on the test. So they put it on the IEP. Make right. sure you read that sentence that says, read the passage and pick the best answer. Make sure you read that to student two times. That seems to be, <laughs> that seems to be the magic number. And right. you have to do it twice. And if you do that twice, they're gonna do better on the test. What kind of a ridiculous, who, who thought of that? Right. So, but the, see the, and then there's another one that goes with that, um, that is very contentious. Like, you know, people get so up in arms about this, which is test read aloud. Mm -hmm. And, and they're like, oh my God, but it's a reading test and the reading test, you, you have to say that not on the reading test, you can't read the test aloud. That's a reading test. And fine i guess but if really a student can't read that should be read aloud to them right, <laughs> like, right. You're, you're, you're testing a student you know can't read and then yeah. you're saying don't read the test out loud to them so they have no chance even at the multiple choice because you 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 don't think they should read and that's so, even when you read them a sentence at the top that says that they're supposed to answer the questions yeah <laughs> so, so you're supposed to read them that directions two times and then say Oh, when it gets harder, now you're supposed to read on your own. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the, the harder text you're supposed to read on your own because I can't help you with that one. Right. Uh, all I can read to you is, is what to do in this. Make text. sure to read this passage and answer the questions. I right? may read this passage and answer the questions. Now yeah. take four chapters of Moby Dick and write an essay on it. All right. Exactly. Compliance and, and, method. And it's so ridiculous. Like the yeah. reading teachers, and I am, I, I am one. Right. I can see the perspective. The reading teachers are like, making a simple problem of this complicated issue. Reading teachers often are like, well, it's a reading test. If somebody else reads to them, it, it's not showing me what they can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
fair enough. I agree. But do you think that if you read this test to the student and the student earns a three out of a four on the test somehow, right? Um, they didn't know how to read, but you read it to them, but now they understood everything. So they circled all the right answers and they got, right. got a three or a four on the ELA test, which is obviously not going to happen with that type of student. If they can't yeah. read already, even if you read to them, chances are comprehension is also right. difficult. But anyway, let's say that that does happen. They, they earn a three and a four for once in their life. Oh, what, mm-hmm. a, what a nightmare. Right. Like, why is exactly. that a problem? Right. So, like, who, why are we so... <laughs> and and then people think that, oh, their three is not accurate. It's not telling me anything about the student because obviously the student can't read. Okay, so then don't worry about the three. Like, you don't need the three anyway. for your Right, as if, as if that's the only piece of information anyone would have right. all year. This goes back to sort of your top line point about IEPs, which is you're writing the IEP. Then you say this student reads on a kindergarten level, but when the test was read to them, they got a three or a four. And yeah. it's like, that's all the information that's that two sentences is so valuable to know. <laughs> and, and, it, and to me, it's just kind of sad that so many people feel that it's okay to put a kid like that, put a test like that in front of a student like that mm-hmm. for two hours or unlimited time and just let them struggle and feel crappy by the second than to actually read it out loud to them. Right. Like, to me, it just doesn't make any sense just because you want an accurate, like a three, which again, how many of, of these teachers are actually using the test to break it down, to look at the broken down data, to see what, where the kid is performing, which questions they got right, which they didn't, which the state is so bad at releasing anyway. They right. take so long to release and... How many of us are using that data to actually plan the year out? Not many, if at all, any, because again, that data comes late oftentimes. And it's often like riddled with errors and problems and like all kinds of test issues and whatnot. So it is good information in some regards, but for a student like that, for whom you already know they can't read and you're not going to read the test aloud to them, it doesn't make a difference. And, you know, like to think that it's going to inflate all of the test scores somehow to be, to me is, is a bit of a stretch. So I'm, I'm that test read aloud with the exception of the reading test to me is a ridiculous uh, kind of a accommodation because if it's test read aloud, that means the students has significant struggles with language, no matter which test it is, they're not going to be right. able to read it. Right. So if you know that already, then why only put that in for some of the tests and not the others? Right. So it's kind of a ridiculous thing. And, and teachers, good teachers anyway, are not going to do that to the child in a regular class. They're not right. going to be like, oh, uh, you don't have, this is a reading class. So, you know, read this text on your own. I'm not going to support you or teach you or like, right. or read it aloud to you. Right. As like, if a student in any class said, hey, Ms. Strawberry, what's this word? I wouldn't be like, oh, that's uh, hypotenuse. Right. They're like, oh, right. well, I just read aloud, even though that wasn't in a student's IP. It oh, my goodness. no issue with that. But apparently right. it's a big issue for many of the reading teachers. And it's a big issue for the you know people, the powers that be. Right. And, and that goes back. That often sort of leads to one of my, my one of my biggest pet peeves with 
anyone, and I, this comes up the most in situations like the one you're describing, where people say, well, in the real world, you know, and people, someone's not going to be there to read to them. And I just feel like for special ed students in particular, but honestly, for everyone, as we get older, we're, we, we make our own real world that ideally allows you to accentuate your strengths and not bring out your weaknesses, right? Even myself, I'm a high energy guy. That's one of the reasons I'm a teacher because I hate sitting at a desk all day. Sure. <laughs> and, sure. you know, so I just think that that line of logic just makes no sense and should be yeah i I think we should worry about you know that stage of life when that stage of life comes like you know we sure we obviously understand and want to prepare children for that stage of life but not at the expense of the current stage of life right like yes i don't want to make the current stage of life torturous for you because i think you have to read when you are 28 or whatever so I agree with that. Of course, everybody's goal is to, you know, get the child to learn as much as possible and beat all expectations. Right. You know, of course. And uh, that doesn't mean that we have to do it in a way that punishes the child or makes them feel bad while they're trying to get there. You know, I think that that process becomes very torturous when you constantly sit through reading tests is just an example but sit through tasks and activities in in schools and classrooms where you clearly don't have the prerequisite skills and teachers know and yet you you're expected to sit there and figure something out about it right um and that's kind of torturous i know good teachers will make all things accessible to the best of their ability and teachers and i feel teachers do try mm-hmm. uh i i've never met a teacher who's like no i'm not gonna give a read aloud to this student who can't like I've never met a person who just feels like you know they're not going to give a child the support they need to be successful like everybody wants that right Uh, but at sometimes you know when this test kind of situation occurs that people all of a sudden flip the switch and I just feel like we should kind of fight back against some of that because I feel it's it's maybe um, not as important as you know we might in our climate uh, have given it the it might not be as important as we think it is maybe right some of us i don't know um the last thing i was going to say before we wrap up is i this isn't in a choosable um accommodation on CSIS right now you can ensure that students get an abacus given to them for every math exam. and I'm always, i had to google that one that, i'm I didn't always know so tempted when I was when I was leaving my first school and finishing these IEPs in May and June, just to put abacus on every kid's IEP. Yeah, that'd be a good. See point. next year when someone from the state Sorry. shows up and they're like, "Excuse me, this student is supposed to have an abacus with them during this exam." Yeah, it's it's yes, that's still around. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are you know there and and again even and these are phrases like these are not even complete sentences and they're even hard to understand. Right. So you know, even the the bank that the people who created for example in our case and i know it's different in different states and districts Mm -hmm. but in our case in new york city we get a bank a drop down menu to choose from right so like whoever put those there has not done a good enough job to make (laughs) it easy to understand so what are you supposed to do yeah exactly well um (laughs) j max thank you so much for joining me today this was this was great i could talk to you all day (laughs) It was fun, man. I hope we can do it again.
Absolutely. All right. 